Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? All right, if you have a Bible, let's open it to Matthew chapter 7. We are coming down to the end of our uh, series through the Sermon on the Mount, where we've been looking at one of the most well-known passages of Scripture, Jesus' great sermon on, in Matthew's chapter 5, 6, and 7, and we have two weeks left. We're going to uh, handle verses 15 through 23 of Matthew 7, then we'll end up next week, and then, uh, then Palm Sunday, and then Easter, and then we'll start something else after that. So uh, if you don't have a Bible, as always, we want you to use one of the Bibles in the rack in front of you. Welcome, we, we encourage you to take that Bible, if you don't own a Bible, let it be yours, our gift to you, and I think you'd be really helped to follow along. Now, uh, we are at, a, at an advantage and a disadvantage in this digital age, because I realize some of you didn't open your Bible, some of you turned it on, which is great, it's wonderful. Um, but can I just, can I just say a one little word uh, for you, if you've... If you're prone, to, if you're into that, which is wonderful, um, you, you are you, you're particularly vulnerable to uh, in the middle of hearing from God's word, surfing the internet and checking Facebook. And just think about what we're about to do, right? Now we're about to open God's holy inspired word, the God who created everything out of nothing and who is superintending human history providentially, the God who in Isaiah 46 says that I have declared the end from the beginning, the God that we just sang about in Psalm 46, who is working out the affairs of nation for the display of his glory. This transcendent, holy other God has condescended And has written his word. He has come in the form of his son. The word of God Jesus. And he has given us his word. And he has given us his word. That he has superintended through the ages. And preserved it. So that what we are reading. Even in our language. Even though it was not the original language. That the Bible was written in. Is sure and steadfast and certain. And true. And now, unlike millions of other people in the world, in God's kind providence, he's caused us to be born into a situation where we can freely open his word. And now I consider myself, and this is not false humility, a middle-of-the-road mediocre preacher. That's well known, and you understand that, right? Give me a north-south on that. Okay. Not, not, not too enthusiastically, but... So I'm going to stumble around for a few minutes here in Matthew 7. But in the middle of my stumbling and stammering, we are going to read the creator of the universe word to us. What a folly to check Facebook as God is speaking, right? So with that, let's read, now that I set the tone, how about that? Good morning, everybody. Let's read God's word. As Jesus comes to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the second half of chapter 7 is Jesus warning us 
he's warning us about two ways to live. Last week and this week, he's warning us about false prophets and false conversion. These are sober words. And I pray that even those of us who have been Christians maybe for 40 or 50 years would not just say, oh, this doesn't apply to me, but that we would let it be like the smelling salts that the old trainer in Rocky pops underneath the boxer's nose in between rounds. It wakes us up so that we can get back into the fight. And if you're not yet a believer in Jesus, I think God has providentially brought you here this morning to hear a clear presentation of what it means to follow Jesus. Nothing could be more important. So let's listen to God's word in Matthew 7, starting in verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us understand this text. Father, thank you for your word, for, for causing it to pass through the ages into our hands today as your word to us. I pray, Lord, that you would show us wonderful things from your book. I pray that Christians in this room would be encouraged and chastened, convicted, and spurred on to good works. I pray that my dear friends that are in this room who are not yet trusting in Christ, I pray that you would make that apparent to them and that you would not send them into themselves looking for ways they can improve, but that by your Holy Spirit, you would send them outside of themselves so that they would look up and see that their only hope is in what you have done in your son Jesus on the cross to bear the punishment of sin and rise again in victory. Lord, would you give eyes to see and ears to hear this great and glorious news. We pray it in Jesus' name for your glory and our joy. Amen. So I think this text is about false prophets and false conversions and Jesus warning us about the two. And so what I want to do is just kind of work through each little paragraph first the paragraph there where Jesus is warning us about false prophets. And I want us to think about what is in this text and maybe gathering some truths from other parts of the Bible, not just in this text in Matthew 7, about false prophets and false conversions. To do that, I've made a list, I think, of what is in this text and in other parts of the Bible. Maybe not comprehensive, but a list of marks 
of a false prophet. So let's look there again at verses 15 through 20 where Jesus says, Beware of these false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but they're going to bear bad fruit as opposed to somebody who is truly a prophet of God is going to bear good fruit. So let's look at five marks of a false prophet. That Again, I, see, I think we see some in this text and others in other parts of the Bible. First is, I think, that a false prophet, but before we even mention a mark, just so you know what a prophet is, sometimes when we hear this word prophet, we think maybe of an Old Testament prophet who, like a Moses or an Elijah or a Jeremiah or an Isaiah, certainly that is a prophet. That's prophet capital P. That's a particular office that God raised up in the Old Testament to be his mouthpiece. And through these Old Testament prophets came the Old Testament, the the books of the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, we have these men called apostles who were the 12 men that were with Jesus during his earthly ministry. One of them falls off at the end and and, and, uh, rejects Jesus. Another is added there, Matthias. And then Paul becomes an apostle. These men were witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. And they, along like the prophets of the Old Testament, had a special one-time authority to communicate God's word to God's people in what becomes our Bible. So prophets, capital P, are the writers of the Old Testament, and then apostles, capital A, are the writers of the New Testament. It's not to say that all of the New Testament books are written by one of the apostles. Some of them are written through the assistance or the ministry associates of these 12, 13 apostles. But the point is, is that that's how we know what books should be in the Bible because it came through the prophets raised up by God and through these specific apostles raised up by Jesus to be the ones that establish his word. In this text, this lowercase p, Jesus is speaking about people who aren't necessarily Old Testament prophets, but are people that claim to be communicators of God's message. So in the New Testament, the Bible speaks about people who uh, have a gift of prophecy, and sometimes we think that's some mystical or strange thing, but really it isn't. It's just a gift of not foretelling the future necessarily, but forthtelling the word of God, right? And so here Jesus is saying that while there will be many prophets who come and speak God's truth throughout the history of the church, there will also be false prophets. So then, the first mark of a false prophet, one is that they twist the truth of the scriptures. So it goes without saying that if there can be false prophets, then there must be true prophets or people that are speaking the truth, right? And let's just admit that we are a bit vulnerable in our age of relativity to claim that anything is true or false. Don't we just kind of hem and haw, well, you know, if it's good for you, it's just sort of this age of relativism that we live in. And I think many Christians, in a desire to sort of be nice and, you know, gentle, uh, wrongly relativize life, one thing that the Bible calls us to is this clear delineation between truth that leads to life and falsehood that leads to death. And Jesus is telling us that other parts in the Bible, we see this as well, that false prophets are in fact just that false. 
They twist the truth of the scriptures. And the thing is, is that most often they don't walk around with placards on their chest saying, I'm a false prophet. Because then if they did, guess what? We would know that they're false prophets, right? Listen to what Paul says about teachers like this in 2 Timothy chapter 4 when he is encouraging a young pastor. And by the way, if you're a young man that is someday aspiring to any type of pastoral or teaching ministry, you should make a habit to read First and Second Timothy and Titus. These three small letters are an old pastor writing to younger pastors. They're called the pastoral epistles, and they're rich with wisdom. Don't don't be a young guy that thinks that what you need for a church is a cool band and stonewashed jeans and a soul patch and wire-rimmed glasses. Although, I guess, I mean, I really actually need these, right? <laughs> Don't hang out at Starbucks all day. Read First and Second Timothy and Titus. All right, rant over. Second Timothy chapter 4. This is what Paul says about teachers that twist the truth. And why they do it. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Listen to verse 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. You see that? There is, this, there is this tendency in human culture to want to hear what we want to hear, right? And false prophets are going to twist the truth of the Scriptures by telling people what they want to hear. So that's the first mark of a false prophet. The second mark of a false prophet, as Jesus tells us here, is that they sound appealing. He says there in the first verse, in verse 15 that we read, that they come to you in sheep's clothing, right? So they're not going to jump out from behind a rock and say, I am here to lead you into air and potential destruction. They sound appealing. They come in sheep's clothing, and they tell people what they want to hear. And the way they do this is often not by saying something that is so contrary, obviously, to the truth, but by just tweaking it a little bit so that it's just enough genuine sounding that it kind of gains an audience, and then it kind of, over the course of time, begins to take you off of your trajectory. We've got a lot of young infantry soldiers in this room, and they know, because I've spent some time being lost in the woods at Fort Benning, that when you're shooting an azimuth, when you're trying to do a land navigation course to go from one point to another, that if you are shooting an azimuth in a direction of a point on a map, even if you're off just one little tick, one little degree, You may start walking for a while and you're kind of on the right path, but you add several kilometers or you add 10 or 15 years of just being off a little bit and you end up, even though it seemed kind of like you were on the right path at the beginning, you add some time to that and before you know it, you're as far away from the truth as a lost lieutenant is away from the point that he should be at, right? They they sound appealing, but they are sheep 
they are wolves in sheep's clothing. And here's what I have noticed as well is that oftentimes these people are self-deceived themselves. It's not like they are consciously thinking, I am going to fleece God's people. They very likely may have fallen victim to false conversion, which we're going to get to at the end of this text, and they were led astray by a false prophet, and now they're just following in line with that, and it is, as Jesus says, the blind leading the blind. They sound appealing. Thirdly, they don't center on the good news of the gospel. Now, they may agree with the gospel, but they only tag it on at the end of their message. Don't go, don't settle at a church like this. In fact, a lot of you young guys that are here in the army and you move on, you PCS to some other post, be aware of the preaching and the teaching of a church or anybody that proclaims to be a, a communicator of God's word. Is the center and the substance of the teaching about the person and work of Jesus? Or is it about some felt need and then at the end, just to sort of throw a little Jesus icing on the cake, you throw the sinner's prayer on the end and claim that people came to Christ because they've heard all about how to have a better Tuesday. And oh, by the way, if you want to pray the sinner's prayer, just kind of hum and hum and hum and do this thing right here. Oh, about 14 people came to know Jesus today. I mean, friends, it's not dripping with the truth of the gospel. There's this old Baptist preacher in London back in the 1800s. <laughs> I know, you guys roll your eyes. Charles Spurgeon, I didn't plan to say this, I just, it's off the top of my head. And Spurgeon said this about Christ in the scriptures. He said that in every village in Hamlet in England, there is a road that leads to London. Likewise, in every nook and cranny of Scripture, there is a road that leads to Christ, right? And so we should listen and have our ears tuned in for people who make much of Jesus. But let's not believe it because Uncle Chuck said it. Let's believe it because the inspired apostle Paul said it. Listen to Colossians chapter 1, a little before um, uh, Colossians chapter 1 verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. This is speaking about Jesus, okay? The preeminence of Jesus. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things, listen to this, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That means that the molecules of our body are just being held together by the sovereign power of God the Son right now. Think about that. Even the most wicked person that doesn't know Jesus and doesn't acknowledge him and rejects his grace by his mercy is being held together by Jesus, who is the point of everything. That's exciting to me anyway. You guys are like, whatever. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything, 
he might be preeminent. That in everything, he might be preeminent. In our church gatherings, in our homes, in our fight against sin, in our preaching, in our singing, in our praying. For in him, meaning Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus is the center and substance of all things. And let's not, let's not forget the triune nature of God. So we have God the Father who has planned salvation in eternity past and orchestrated it. And God the Son who comes to accomplish salvation on the cross. And God the Holy Spirit who applies salvation and the worship of the Son. And we have the triune work of God in the redemption of mankind through the plan of the Father, the work of the Son, and the application of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus in his work on the cross is the hero, the center of every teaching in the church or should be. But false prophets don't center on Jesus. They preach morality and pragmatism and steps and then tack on a repeat after me gospel sinner's prayer at the end. Fourthly, and this is related, this is a consequence of not making the gospel center, is they make man the focus and God the servant. Beware of teaching that presents Jesus as merely the means to an end. Beware of preaching that presents Jesus as a kind of latest operating system that you can download and add to your life that will help you live healthier or happier in this life now. Friends, that is a false gospel preached by false prophets. And this is often very, very subtle because the Bible is full of instruction on how if we follow Jesus and follow his word and obey him that we will be blessed. That's not a guarantee that these 80 or 90 years will go well, but unless you understand what true blessing is, we can very easily be prone to bending that into making us the focus and God there merely to meet our needs. Friends, that's one of the reasons why we preach through the Bible rather than starting with a topic or a human need and then gathering, kind of cherry-picking verses to find out how, what, what the Bible says about that. We go through books of the Bible because sometimes we have to deal with difficult topics like this. I mean, who wants to get up in the morning and talk to people about false prophets and false conversion? But it's in God's Word, and it all somehow points to Jesus. And it lowers man and exalts God. And that is the best thing for our souls. And let's admit that we don't like that as Americans. We like to be exalted. America. <laughs> don't we? In fact, we are prone. We are prone to people that make us feel big and bad and awesome. And I think much of our nation is currently being fleeced by a political candidate who is tapping into that self-centeredness. And it is wicked. It's wicked. God is the focus. 
We are the servants. Beware of people who make much of man and treat God as a means to an end. Listen to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 is often held up as this wonderful hall of fame of faith chapter. And oftentimes, if you listen to many TV preachers that preach a prosperity gospel, they center on Hebrews 11 as this great example of if you have faith, if you have faith, then God is going to do great things for you. And there's a, there's a nugget of truth to that. But they only read the first half of the chapter. Listen to what some other people with great faith, what their uh, life looks like in Hebrews 11. So Hebrews 11, verses 1 through 31, is about these people with great faith. Starting in verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson, Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, right? So yeah, 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 America. Quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Oh, but wait a minute, it's going to take a left-hand turn. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. You see that? The writer of Hebrews is just lumping people that won great wars and who were sawed in half as examples of faith. God is sovereign and he will do what he wills with our obedience because what he has promised us is not 90 years of comfort or 90 years of pragmatism or ways to have a better life. Life is not these nine decades. Life is eternity with Jesus and false prophets always point you to the here and now what you can get out of God and not to the there and then and where we will be with him forever and then finally the fifth mark of a false prophet is that they over time bear bad, bad fruit and it can often take much time to recognize bad fruit but there seems to be a kind of immediacy and a lot of a lot of urgency and a lot of look at what we're doing now but there's a faithful plotting of people who preach the truth they're not so concerned with reporting huge statistics and telling about all the things that are going on they just keep plodding along faithfully and they bear good fruit over time but jesus warns us not just to be aware of the problem out there which is false prophets but also to be aware of the problem in here, which is false conversion. So that's the next few verses. Let me read 21 through 23 again. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So we've looked at some marks of a false prophet. Now let's turn, turn our attention to marks of false conversion. And I think there's probably many more, but I see two in this text and, and in the Bible. The first mark of false conversion, and we see it here, is trusting in works done for Jesus rather than the work of Jesus. And this is so subtle. This is so subtle. Listen to what Paul says to Titus in Titus chapter 3. It's one of these books that you young aspiring preachers should be reading. Titus chapter 3, starting in verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, listen to verse 5, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Friends, did you hear that? There, in that passage is the heart of, of the good news of the gospel. We are not saved by our efforts to make ourselves right with God. We're saved by his work on the cross. So listen, if you are not yet trusting in Christ, and maybe you just wandered into this room for the first time, I want you to understand that right there in that truth is the difference between gospel that saves and religion that kills. You may be under a false notion. You may have grown up in a legalistic culture where you instinctively think that you must get yourself squared away before you can be accepted by God. Nothing could be further from the truth. You can't do it. You are unable to do that. But the good news of the gospel is that through the regeneration, meaning God makes you alive, you're dead, and he causes you to wake up to his grace, and he gives you eyes to see that he looks at Jesus' perfect life and sacrificial death and victorious resurrection to be the thing that has removed the punishment that should have been yours, right? And notice that he, he doesn't say you need to figure this out. It is a consequence of the new birth. You see that? He, you're dead, you're not alive, and he regenerates you. He makes you alive. Do you see that? Now, I have four children. And uh, I don't want to get too graphic here, but let me just say that not a one of those four uh, cooperated with mom and dad about the conception of their life. You hear me? All right. It, you know, I, I, I promise, Dad, I'm going to be a good kid. If you will kind of do your part, I'll do my part. You don't exist. <laughs> Something happened to you 
before you even had life. And that is the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, the sovereign, merciful grace of God happens to you. And because it has happened to you, now you are enabled to follow him. And what happens to you is you now realize that it is not your works, your life, your faith, your attempt, your efforts to make yourself right with God because you were dead. You, you spiritually, as far as life is concerned, did not, you were dead. And God is able through his grace to make you alive and he enables you the first breath you breathe when you come alive is the recognition that it is Jesus who did the work and not you, right? So if you're not a Christian, do you see the incredible freeing grace that this is? It's not about whether or not you can make yourself holy enough to be accepted by God. If it were up to that, you and every other human being would never stand a chance because we cannot do it. But the good news of the gospel is that if you are hearing this, if you have ears to hear, that, I believe, is evidence that God is waking up your dead heart so that you can hear this and respond to it. And the first breath of response is not to look within yourself and determine how good you are, but to look outside of yourself to Jesus, who alone is good and has been good for you. Friends, that's what it means to be a Christian. And if you've been a Christian for 40 years... Because right about now you were like, oh, Brad's preaching the gospel again. Yeah, I hope somebody gets saved. Right? Well, praise God, so do I. I pray for that every day. I pray for every day for people to come to faith in Jesus here. But that's not just a message for people who haven't yet believed. That is a message for those of us who have believed for years. <laughs> for years. Because we need to hear that afresh and again because we are so prone to having begun by God's grace thinking that we are kept in God by our own works. But we need to hear the gospel afresh and again and it will humble us and deepen our worship and make us more glad about the grace of God, right? So Christians need the gospel too and Christians need to realize that trusting in works done for Jesus rather than the work of Jesus is false. When Robert and I were in India a few weeks ago, we went to this river that flows through the city of Nasik, where we were with the missionaries there from South Africa. And Nasik is one of the 12 holy sites in, in India for the Hindus. And they, once a year, go around to these 12 holy sites to do some sort of religious act to make themselves right with God. In Nasik, there's this river that flows through the city, and they believe that if they go bathe themselves in this river, that uh, it will wash their sins away. And it was just a, really a heart-wrenching scene to see these people dipping in this polluted cesspool of a river that was just full of human waste and pollution, and it was almost a kind of symbol of not just the lostness of Hindus, but 
the lostness of all people that try and make themselves right by their own effort. Washing a polluted heart in polluted water and thinking that somehow we can make ourselves right with our Creator is heart-wrenching. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has done that for us. So trusting in the works done for Jesus rather than the work of Jesus is a mark of a false conversion. Secondly, and finally, not bearing the fruit of a new life. And in the Bible Belt South, where the vast majority of people have some sort of casual or cultural connection to Christianity, we are particularly vulnerable to this, are we not? I mean, I've had conversations with people that seem to think that they're okay with God because their grandfather used to be a deacon at some Baptist church, as if, as if, as Hebrews 9 says that it's appointed unto all men to die, or Hebrews 10, and after that comes the judgment, as if, as if we're going to be standing before the Lord, and you know, uh, you know, my grandfather used to be a deacon over at Humana Humana, and you know, one time I went to VBS. Oh, oh, okay. Well, well, in that case, come on, come on in. Or even worse, we—that's why, friends, we don't we, we we shy away from altar calls here, not because we don't think it's helpful to pray a prayer, but because so many people have heard an emotional message and then repeated a prayer tacked on at the end of it. And then they, because they pray a prayer and raise their hand, but then there's no follow-up, there's no discipleship, there's no good teaching that comes after that. They think they are right with God merely because they prayed a prayer. And friends, our city and our state and our country and this world is full of people who have false assurance because they have a minimal connection with the church or maybe they spend a few weeks here or there or a month in church. Friends, the sign of true conversion is not a confession or not occasionally doing this or that, but it is bearing the fruit of new life. So in Mark chapter 4, the parable of the sower, Jesus talks about four different types of soil. I'll just summarize it for you. The first type of soil, the seed of the gospel is sown and the bird comes and snatches it. It doesn't even take root at all, right? Then the second type of soil gets among thorns and it takes root for a little while and the plant seems to spring up as if it's, it's, if it's gonna last, but, but then the cares of this world start to crowd in and it chokes out that seed and the plant dies, then the third type of soil is, is rocky soil, and, and it seems like the seed takes root and is going to endure, but then tribulation and distress comes, and it crowds in and chokes out that plant, and it dies. But then there's the fourth soil, and that's the good soil, the only truly born-again soil, where the Word of God comes, the gospel comes, takes root, and grows. And what does Jesus say is the mark of this soil? It bears fruit. Some 30, some 60, some 90, 100. It bears a yield. It bears the fruit of a new life. That's what it means to be the Christian, to increasingly, over time, take God's side against sin. Now, it's been a while, but let's remember a William Arnaud's quote. 
Another favorite dead British pastor of mine back in the 1800s, contemporary of Charles Spurgeon, William Arnaud, he said that the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not that one has sin and the other does not, right? But that the Christian is taking God's side against their dreaded sin. That's fruit. And the non-Christian is taking sin's side against the dreaded God. Friends, I've said that quote 50 times here over the years. Which one are you? Really? Are you taking God's side? doesn't mean your sins. To, be, to bear the fruit of a new life does not mean that you're perfect in any way. We will not be perfect. We will not be glorified until we stand before Jesus. But to bear the fruit of a new life means that we're taking God's side against sin and we're not taking sin's side against a dreaded God. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 6 about this evidence of a new life. A few verses at the end, Romans 6 verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. And now he's going to describe the Christian, verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life for the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord friends we can have assurance because we see the fruit the evidence of a new heart that has new desires now a second ago I talked about how dangerous it can be to find your assurance in a prayer but let me not diminish the importance of crying out to God In fact, in just a minute, I'm going to wrap this thing up, thankfully. And we're going to come around this table. And people that are Christians are going to receive communion. And I'm going to ask you, if you know, if God has made it clear to you that you are not yet a believer in Jesus, I think you, the first act of faith that you need to do is you should cry out to God. If God is making your heart new, you should turn away from yourself and you should pray and say, God, I can't do it without you. Nothing I bring to the table can make me right with you. And I finally realize that. I trust in what Jesus has done to bear your punishment that should be mine, not in myself. Do that even now. Don't wait for me to give you words. Do it even now. In your heart, turn away from yourself and cry out to God and say, Jesus, forgive me. I receive you. I trust in you. I don't understand it all, but I trust in you. And before you leave this room this morning, meet with somebody, talk with somebody, whether it's a pastor down front or just somebody that you know to be a Christian, talk to somebody about that prayer that you are crying out in your heart right now and be made new by the grace of God. So with that, we, we come now to the Lord's table where we, as Paul instructs us in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, to examine ourselves, to look and to see whether or not we are taking God's side against our sin.
Now, because we are not perfected, inevitably, uh, at least I hope nobody, you are, you are uh, self-deceived if you are. If you look back and you say, you know, since the last time we received communion here, I've had an awesome month. <sighs> I think I am ready to come to the table. No. All of us, when we look within, are going to, there should be a, a necessary despairing of our own righteousness. And it's in that moment where the grace of the gospel should flood us. Don't let that overly discourage you. Let that push you afresh, dear Christian, again afresh to the reality of the gospel, right? That Jesus has bore your sin. He's taken it away. He's given you a new heart. And he has promised to never leave you or forsake you. As we look within and examine ourselves, let us not stay there, but let us look without to the one who made an end of all of our sin. And when we see Jesus and we understand what he has done, then what happens is we don't come with our tails between our legs to the table. We come, as Jared read for us in the call to worship, boldly seeking grace in our time of need because, Hebrews 4 says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but in all ways is tempted as we are yet without sin. Therefore, we come boldly because Jesus has made an end of all our sin. And we come wrapped in his righteousness and not our own. And from there, we worship and live and fight sin. And we do this to the glory of God and our joy. Ushers, if you'd come ready to receive or to serve us. I'm going to pray, and after I pray... I'm going to ask you to stand, and when you are ready to come to the table closest to you, if you are a believer in Jesus, you're welcome to come when you are ready, and to take the bread, and to take the cup. As you hold on to those elements, Will will come and lead us to receive those elements together as a, as a family. Let's not let the inertia of the moment or the flow of the crowd push us before we have examined ourselves and before we afresh see our daily need for the gospel. So when you are ready, after this prayer and after we stand, Come to the table if you are a believer in Jesus. If you're not a believer in Jesus, if you're not following him and trusting him, not because we're trying to be exclusionary, but because we love you. We ask you not to come to this table because we don't want you to confess something that you don't truly believe. And we don't want you to find some false assurance in some ritual. We love you more than that, and we would much rather you wrestle with the fact that you need to think about these words and heed them and trust in Christ. 
If you need to do that, as I said, talk to somebody that you know to be a Christian. Meet with a pastor down front while the music is playing or after the service and know what it means to trust in Christ. But this meal is for believers. Let's pray. Father, we are prone to wander. We are prone to leave the God we love. Ah, oh, but what a, what a great grace the good news of the gospel is. That you don't lose any of your sheep. That even though the world kicks us in the stomach and the teeth throughout the week, we have a sure and steadfast Savior. because he has bore our sin and rose again in victory over it and because that was all part of your great and grand plan before eternity because somehow you are working all things together for your glory and our joy we can come to this table boldly with confidence in our time of need not because we are good but because Jesus is good for us Lord, would you let us see that afresh this morning and would it humble us and cause us to worship you more passionately? My friends in this room who are not yet trusting in you, God, would you, would you do what only you can do? Would you, would you awaken them to grace? Would you give them the very thing that you require of them, which is faith, a new heart, whereby they can believe and trust and put their hope not in their works but in Jesus' work. Do this, I pray, God. And as we come around this table, may we examine ourselves and rejoice in the gospel. And I pray it in Jesus' name.